trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 8, Zen for Surgeons with Dr. Philip Parazio at UPenn Medical System. In this trauma healing learning, we will explore how surgeons too, while in the operating room, can practice mindfulness and, as our guest says, can operate with Zen. That's right. In the sometimes stressful and always precise field of surgery, it is vital to have a steady hand and clear mind and to be able to work well with a team. We'll be hearing from Dr. Philip Parazio, a urology surgeon from the University of Pennsylvania Medical System. Dr. Parazio spent over 10 years at the Brady Urological Institute at Johns Hopkins Medical Institution where he was head of the Brady's Fellows Program as assistant professor of urology and oncology. He received his undergraduate degree at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and then went on to earn his medical degree from Columbia University, College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York City. It was there at Columbia where Dr. Parazio completed a Doris Duke Clinical Research Fellowship in Urologic Oncology. He is an expert when it comes to the urinary tract and performs a variety of surgeries from open to minimally invasive. I met Dr. Parazio while I was mediating and facilitating for the Brady at Johns Hopkins. We learned quickly that we were both interested in mindful practices. Since that time, Dr. Parazio has transferred to UPenn Medical System as chair of their urology department and has created his own podcast, Operate with Zen. This is his outlet for contemplating how mindfulness and surgery can work hand in hand and when they do, can transform the surgical experience for greater precision and relaxation, which might positively impact surgical outcomes. It certainly can keep surgeons working better as teams and taking care of themselves too, so they do not burn out and we can have the benefit of their expertise. During my journey with Archer, I had a long conversation with Dr. Parazio about mindfulness as it relates to hospitals and health. It was certainly a big part of my experience with Archer's journey, and I believe it is for other family members too, as well as for patients themselves in recovery. I also shared with Dr. Parazio how I would kiss the hands of the surgeons before each of Archer's many delicate surgeries and tell them I believed angels would be dancing on their fingers. I also told them I was praying for them and that God would be with them in the surgical room, and I knew the surgery would be successful. I believed if they knew that we believed in them, and that they were supported 
in ways they could not see. It would relax them and we would have good outcomes. The mind is so powerful. The way we think can instruct our bodies and actions in valuable ways. And of course, the mind can also program the body in destructive ways as well. Oh yes, the mind is a powerful thing. It's the quieted body that always assists the mind in positive ways though. To take in all that is necessary and to gently filter out what is not. We'll soon hear more about Dr. Parazio's view of Zen for surgeons, as well as how it relates to the vast and varying field of spinal cord injury. So settle in, take a deep breath, settle your body, and allow your soul to soar as you anticipate new insights for yourself. Here we go. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 8, Zen for Surgeons with Dr. Philip Parazio. blessed to introduce you to Dr. Phil Parazio at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Parazio is a urologist and also the producer and creator of the podcast Operate with Zen. Welcome, Dr. Parazio. Luis, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to see you again, and it's a real pleasure to be chatting with you today. It really is my pleasure, too. Uh, Phil and I first met doing work together at Johns Hopkins University, and maybe that's where we can start. Let's let our listeners know a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. So I'm a New Yorker originally. I'm from New York, but I spent the last 15 years of my life in Baltimore, and that's where we met. I was at Johns Hopkins where I trained, and I was on faculty as a urologist for a number of years before making my most recent transition. So I'm now a professor and chief of urology at Penn Presbyterian Hospital, which is part of the UPenn or Penn Medicine System up in Philadelphia. So that's been a recent transition for me. And we met right before I was contemplating that uh, that transition, right as that transition was actually happening, when, as you said, we were doing some work together in the Department of Urology at Hopkins. Do you remember our initial meeting? I do. Well, let's talk about that. What's your memory of it? Yeah, so our first meeting was a Zoom meeting in preparation for a larger group meeting. And the details aren't necessarily important, but we were going through kind of a a group mediation. We, you know, as many good, strong families with a long history, we had our ups and downs, our pluses and minuses, and we were at a point where we needed some help to kind of resolve some, some conflict and issues. And it was through that process that I met you. And I learned a lot about mediation. I learned a lot about group wellness and really working with kind of surgeons and understanding uh, other people in in our department. And it was a great experience. Well, I remember that we talked about mindfulness and wellness practices, and you were really into it. Like you got it. And it was a real joy for me because I felt like that was just another intersection uh, for how it is that we could begin to work together. And now 
look at you. I'm so excited. Let's learn a little bit about the inner workings and the inside brain of Dr. Phil Parazio. What does mindfulness mean to you in the medical field? Yeah. So, you know, the, the basic definition of, of mindfulness, I, I, it's always nice to start with the basics, right? Mm. And I think of three main components of that definition. It has to be an intentional process. So you can't just walk down the street and hope to be mindful one day. You have to actually think about being mindful. The actual process is about really being present in the moment and kind of tuning out the past and the future. And that's physically, emotionally, psychologically being present in that moment. And then the last part of it, which is arguably the most important, is really being not judgmental, not putting any weight or assigning any goodness or badness to that moment, but just kind of experiencing it and taking it in and then moving on from there. And it's really appropriate for surgeons. And surgeons are skeptical of this. And one of my favorite things to point out when I start talking to people about mindfulness and mindfulness and surgery is that in its highest form or in its, its best form, the operating room is the most mindful place you can hope for. Everybody in the room, everybody at that moment is cued in on that patient and that patient's issue second to second. And that is an incredibly mindful place. And when you mention that to surgeons, you see, sometimes you see a light bulb go off and go, yeah. Oh yeah, I do know what you're talking about. I do know that experience. And then you can help them kind of expand their mind and think of, of other ways that it can uh, help their practice and help their life. I just love that. It resonates for me as a transformative mediator and actually has been integrated and woven into our trainings for these almost 30 years because similar to surgery, a mediator is listening very intently for sort of that critical moment of when there can be a potential transformation. And it would almost be like the eyes of the surgeon in that regard. And, and we know, you and I, through this practice, how energy follows attention. And so if you're placing your attention on that, it's actually cultivating this place of neutral in a way that, that so many will be like, no, neutral, you're kind of, you know, amorphous and kind of anything goes like, no, actually neutral is a highly disciplined place to be. Um, and it's a mindset and with that non-judgmental suspending judgment piece so I think of surgeons, oh my goodness, what this might look like for them. Yeah, absolutely spot on. And um, I can't remember if I had done this before we met or not, but I got certified as a coach. Um, we talked and, about that, but I didn't know you yeah. were certified. Yes, yeah, I got certified. Terrific. And it's, it's obviously it's different than mediation, but some of the principles are similar where it's really being present in the moment and the whole skill set is learning how to be incredibly attentive to your coachee or the person you're working with, giving them space, being focused on what they need. And honestly, I think if you think of the skill sets of really good physicians who you've interacted with, they're doing the same thing. They're creating space and time and focus on you. And we've all had those experience with physicians who there are obviously the physicians who will spend an hour with you and you feel like they spent an hour with you and it's phenomenal. There's also the physician that spends three minutes with you, but it feels like three hours because they've given you everything they have for those three minutes. And I think that's a real skill set too. And, and really helping people uh, in the clinical side of things understand that is, is an important part of, you know, kind of fostering a mindful relationship or a mindfulness practice as a, as a surgeon and a physician. 
I am particularly appreciative of that because so many professionals, uh, doctors and lawyers, judges, engine chiefs, are resistant uh, to the idea of mindfulness. My sense is, and what they've shared with me over the years, is that it's just going to take too long. Who's got time? But when you speak about, even in that three minutes, how a patient with her physician can experience all of him, all of her, and reciprocally, vice versa, how powerful that is. Do you have ways of understanding how that comes to be? But, you know, I think part of it is the kind of just the personal connection and the fact that we don't, in today's society, we don't connect with so many people. We connect in such a superficial way. Whether it's phone or text or social media, we're not often engaging in good eye contact and seeing people and taking that time and being really personal and giving someone your full attention can be a transformative experience for a lot of people because they don't get it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. We don't get it as much as we should. I, I think that's part of it. Um, yeah, I hope that answers a little bit. No, I think it's very much part of it and the incredible power. And we're so resourced with the ability to have eye contact and just how powerful full on eye contact is. I think of mindfulness as something that when we cultivate it, oftentimes with our eyes closed as we're meditating or praying, it's when we can take that completely centered experience with our eyes open and connect with someone else. So I think that, I think that's really right on. I, I'm also wondering, and I wonder out loud with you, about what we know in science, in particular neuroscience now also, just about mirror neurons. You know, that if one person is really all in, and not too much, you know, not like in someone's grill, Um, but just very present, as you said, with another, how that experience of mirror neurons works where the other person then experiences that presence and can even calm and return it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the science around mindfulness is growing exponentially and it's really strong. And and I try and do that with a lot of the surgeons and physicians too, because they tend to be skeptics by nature and they tend to rely on objective data. And there is really strong objective data about the strengths of mindfulness and a consistent mindfulness practice. And you do not need to be a Buddhist monk who devotes your entire life to see those benefits, nor do you need to be a Buddhist monk to see those benefits on the, in the studies. Um, But it shows changes in brain chemistry. It shows us changes in brain structure. It shows actual benefits in the way people um, in memory recall and the way they behave and can change mood and interact in situations. So yeah, there are real tangible benefits to a mindfulness practice that the science is starting to really demonstrate. My understanding of those benefits related to the science is that a mindful approach, um, which we could extrapolate to say uh, trauma-informed approach, a a self-awareness approach. We have a number of ways of thinking about it, you know, relationally, that it realigns the central nervous system for ourselves. And then we have this, you know, some might say it's kind of woo-woo, and I'd love to hear your views on this. But when, when we practice that discipline of 
breathing or eye contact with others and our own central nervous system that, you know, gets out of whack any given hour, you know, or minute in a day becomes a little bit more aligned again, that it changes the environment that we are orbiting in and impacts others simply by the quality of our attention. Yeah, I love that. And, and you're absolutely right. There's so many theories on this and there's so many ways to approach it. And that's one of the things I, I do when I try and talk to people about this is expose them to all the different ways to think about it or a lot of, because hopefully something will resonate with somebody. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned before prayer, prayer is meditation, yeah. right? Yeah. A trauma approach. That's meditation. Like there's all different ways to be mindful and, and thoughtful about this. But I think at the basic physiologic level, one of the ways I rationalize it is we've got this innate fight or flight response. And it's going all of the time, right? That's what keeps us alert. That's what keeps us safe. But it also comes with some detriments. It raises anxiety levels. It can release catecholamines and cortisol and all of these things physiologically that give us great strength and the ability to fight or flee, but they can also cause tremendous stress and make it hard for us to function at a, a, um, a more kind of consistent or quiet level. And being mindful allows you to purposefully take that mindset from the fight or flight, from the active response to quiet and calm it quickly to get in a state where you can be more rational and thoughtful and do the things that give us advantages as humans Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to really be thoughtful about what we're doing on a regular basis. So when you are approaching your colleagues, fellow surgeons, what is it that, or how is it that you invite them to consider a mindful practice and how is it that you might share with them that it, or what it might look like for them in their practice? Yeah. So the first thing I do is bring people through a a few exercises to just kind of make them think about what kind of surgeon they are and what kind of surgeon they want to be. And, And we start by describing kind of the classic Johns Hopkins Halsteadian surgeon, which traditionally is a white male who's dogmatic and authoritative and, you know, has all of these, in some ways now, negative connotations, but it is still a revered profession, right? This is a strong, revered profession, people with a real skill set and a real understanding of how to help people. And then I often ask people, well, who is the ideal surgeon? What does the ideal surgeon look like for you? And almost invariably, these beautiful characteristics of altruism and thoughtfulness and kindness come out. Mm-hmm. And then I show them the descriptions of something called the paramitas or enlightened Buddhist beings, which um, are great descriptions of who an ideal surgeon would be. And it's someone who's calm and kind and incredibly skilled and incredibly wise and thoughtful, but focused on things other than themselves and making things around them better and the people around them better. And that introduces kind of a mindfulness concept and that mindfulness will mean different things to different people, but by seeking out these shared values and these shared goals and really focusing on who you want to be, not just who you are at the, at the moment, can really help you achieve uh, those goals. And, and mindfulness may be the way there for a lot of people. Mm, it almost lifts a vibration of something to, um, we don't want to say striving for because it's, that oftentimes pulls us out of mindfulness, but there seems to be a more elevated who you want to be aspirational calling 
if you will. You know, I'm curious about the definition that you just shared. It was very beautiful, but also how you might contrast that with when you first get the meaning, the Johns Hopkins view, if you will, profile. Where are the where are the real differences between those two definitions? Yeah, I think, and also brings you to a mindful approach. I think one of the the great contrast in mindfulness teaching is the expert mind versus the beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. And often the more expert you are, the more you know the answer and the more kind of you are driven in your ways. Where we learn through mindfulness practices, the more experienced you are, the more open you are to other thoughts and expanding your mind to think in different ways and being open to other experience or other people's experiences or try to understand what they're going through. And I think that's one of the big contrasts uh, that we see between the old school surgeon and the new school surgeon is being open, being thoughtful. It's not your way. It's trying to find the right way for the person around you instead of molding them to, to your thought process. Mm, what a wonderful invitation to think about speaking to your colleagues or any of us, this idea of might we, what does beginner's mind look like, you know, for you? I just, I so love that. I also, you know, we are parents together. I'm a mom of five and you're a dad of two daughters. What it is like even when we parents with our children to have a moment of beginner's mind, <laughs> you know, to remember what it was like when we were young, but also to place ourselves back into that sort of, there's a wonder uh, a wondrousness, I think, about that. What is it like for you? Yeah, I think it's a ton of fun. And, and I thank my kids all the time for, for grounding me. And that is, you know, sometimes my youngest is five now. And mm. sometimes it's really fun to try and experience something like a five-year-old yeah. and to really try to put yourself in her shoes and see where she's coming at it from. And, you know, think about the whys uh, and think about why things are going on and why this may be happening. And could it be different? You know, and it's totally brand new, and it uh, it can be really enlightening sometimes and really fun. And just what a five-year-old or young children, what they notice. You know, they're fascinated by these tiny little things that either are bothers to us or problems um, or we just don't have time for. And um, how, how special that is to place ourselves back into that. What do you suppose a surgeon might learn about beginner's mind that would be applicable in the OR? Yeah, I think it's huge. And I, I think we're seeing a big shift in medicine in general, but definitely in surgery. And it coincides really well, I think, with the diversity, equity, inclusion movements as well, where we've learned a lot of us trained and were brought up and a lot of systems now are really inbred, right? It's people who've learned the same way and trained the same way. And it's the Hopkins way or the Penn way or the UCSF way or the Chicago way, whatever way it may be. And we're starting to learn that that might be a great way and it might be great in a lot of circumstances, but there's definitely other ways to do it and there's other ways to learn and there's other ways to think. And we are enriched by having other perspectives and other thought processes instead of just reinforcing what we've done for years and years and years. So occasionally I'll find myself doing the same thing over and over again, and that's become a trigger to sit back and say, all right, am I doing this over and over again because I've learned and evolved that this is the correct way to approach this operation or this problem, or am I just getting in a dogmatic loop? 
And it's a good opportunity to approach it with beginner's mind and say, all right, what are the other options? Let's think divergently instead of like a surgeon, convergently, and open up the mind a little bit and think about what are other ways to do this? Maybe call a colleague, you know, how do you handle this? What are some other ways that you've seen people do this? Just to kind of give yourself an opportunity to learn and to make uh, make progress in the operating room or, or with the patient. I think that's a great way to bring beginner's mind to what we do on a regular basis. You know, one of the seven ways in our book, Being Relational, is to be open. And it's this idea of, as a way itself, of bringing in other diverse voices. And my experience when we were in ICUs across the country with Archer was how powerful it was to connect using my cell phone, a physician whom I knew at Hopkins with a physician where we were in New Jersey or in Atlanta or wherever we were, or a physician outside of that system as our as my repertoire began to grow because it was so not the way and how the surgeons and, and other physicians, but primarily surgeons, really benefited from that connection with each other. I also remember, and I just love listening to you about what it would look like to be open to other people with their own sense of what is an aspect of feeling included. And for me, every time Archer was going under general anesthesia for a major surgery, and there were so many over the course of the first few months, I really intentionally wanted to be with the surgeon. So I'd have to ask because it wasn't a typical kind of thing for the family to see the surgeon ahead of time. You saw the anesthesiologist, you sign all the consent forms, you say, yes, 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 yes. But then the surgeon just sort of at best, maybe a, just a quick, you know, we're coming in, they come in very sort of peacefully we're, and we're going to be wheeling away right now, you know, and they go way ahead. I just wanted to touch their hands. It, these were the fingers that would guide the, the instruments so sensitive on, on our son's neck and on his sinuses and in his brain. And I would kiss their hands and say, the angels will be dancing on your fingers and everything will be all right. I believed in the power of prayer, which is intention, creating a different environment of what's possible. Do you think that's part of mindful practice? Oh, absolutely. Before I answer that, I just want to reflect on, on one thing you said about bringing different groups together, and they were a little uncomfortable yes. about it. And I think one of the real advantages, too, of a mindfulness practice is you learn body awareness and, and mind awareness. And when you're uncomfortable, sometimes that's a cue that that's time to step forward and try something different. And where the typical response is you're uncomfortable, let's run away from it. Now, when somebody says, hey, you know, Phil, Dr. Prozzi, why don't we try this? And my first reaction is, that's eh, uncomfortable. Like, you know what? Let's try that. Let's step towards that discomfort right. and see if we can learn something and become better there. So I've, I, I wasn't always like that, but I've come to embrace things like that. And I think that's an important lesson. It's beautiful. So the discomfort is almost the cue to yeah. pause and then say, wait a second, how can I maybe be more open? Yeah. But I think you're absolutely right about prayer and intention and Speaking frankly, I mean, listen, I was raised in a, in a Catholic tradition. I have my prayers and beliefs and thoughts, and none of us 
none of us really know if that's true. We have our faith. That's why it's faith, right? But the intention there brings awareness to it. It brings energy to it. And sometimes I wear a braided bracelet and it might be for healing or it might be for increased attention or, or mind strength or whatever it may be. And there's a variety of those things that people wear. And my kids ask me, like, do, do the beads actually do that? And my answer is, I don't know, but it makes me think about it every time I look at it and touch it. And I do believe that there's some, there's absolutely strength in that. And, and there's definitely energy that comes from that. And being focused on every time I look at something, if it's designed to give me health or wellness, every time I, th- I look at it and feel that I'm thinking about health and wellness, then that's setting an intention and I'm moving in a, in a proper direction, whether the beads or the bracelet has any power at all. Right. Yeah. And so I, I hope I answered kind of your question about prayer and, and thought there, but I absolutely think it makes a difference. Yes. I, I think of in the Catholic tradition, the rosary beads, you know, just how powerful it can be. And then when you have people in unison uh, praying or holding their own beads, but with that specific intention, um, how powerful it can be. And I, I think for, because we're all unified you know, if we, if we step back, and for me at least, understanding why mindful practices or any of this integration work is important or meaningful as human beings sort of evolving together and, you know, living a higher life, though, making the planet better, more gentle and more kind, is that in being connected with each other, if we can hold a higher intention for what is good and possible for a surgeon. You know, the, the whole body is in literally in the hands of a surgeon. And it takes incredible faith and trust for the patient to give his or her body to the surgeon. And so I, I like to think of it that as many people as can surround that surgeon to say, we believe in you, you know, the angels will be dancing on your hands. It creates higher possibility. Yeah, I think that's wonderful, Luis. And, you know, I tell you, I mean, I personally always appreciate uh, a family support, whether whatever faith or tradition they're from or however they want to instill that. It's it's always appreciated. Um, I tell you, the one thing that, that um, you can see as a challenge with surgeons is when people are devotional and it feeds into that classic... God complex that you've seen in a lot of movies and it's not just in the movies it exists in real life too that's why the movies uh, the movies are just emulating real life but it is an important part I think of mindful practice and being a mindful surgeon to have humility around that as well too and it would be very easy to feed in and say well Luis is you know, uh, bringing the angels and, and praying for God to strengthen my hands today. So I must be at a higher level than her or her son or her family. And um, it takes real humility to sit there and say, no, it's actually all, it's not about me at all. It's all about Archer and it's all about Archer's family and Luis and these people here. And how can I best impart myself to them? And that's one of the tricky things um, that's not so easy to teach but good mindfulness practices and, and good medical practice can teach our trainees and the people around us to act in, in that way. And it's, uh, it's an important part of it, too. Yes, this aspect of humility really threaded, completely integrated with mindful practices as 
maybe each of us as an instrument rather than getting our egos to ahead of us um, or our intellects to in front. Something that it takes constant awareness, constant awareness. You know, I'm wondering if you cover these topics or what you might share with us about your successful podcast, Operate With Zen. Yeah, it, that's been a real um, surprisingly fun venture. Uh, it started, actually, it started, I guess, I'm trying to remember, over a year ago now. And I was really getting into this. It was the smack in the middle of COVID. I was getting more purposefully into mindfulness. And one of the beauties of kind of investigating mindfulness and mindfulness practice is that it was actually um, supporting a lot of the work or the good things that I was already doing or validating some of the good behaviors I already had and just giving kind of a framework and a context that made a lot of sense for me. And that's, I think, part of the reason it took off for me. But I also had time to reflect and think. And I said, man, I need to put, start putting these thoughts down. And in 2022 or 2021, when I started, what's a good format to put these things down for people? And just like you've experienced, the podcast is a great way to connect with people. And so I started the podcast with the intention of just putting my thoughts down. And if it helped other people, awesome. If not, I at least had a repository of what I was thinking about and I could reflect back on it or, or look at it if I had thoughts. And so that's where the podcast started. And it initially started with me talking way too much, uh, kind of solo episodes where I would kind of distill some topics and thoughts and mindfulness and how they uh, could be attributed to surgery and surgeons. And what became very popular was talking with other surgeons who some are intentionally mindful, some are not, but talking about mindfulness practices and how we can all be better surgeons in a better surgical community. And it's been an absolute joy and pleasure for me to kind of spread that word and spread that mission and just interact with people all over the world about being a more mindful surgeon. Can you give us some insight about what that shift that you just shared with us, uh, maybe some examples of what it was like when it was just Phil and then what it was like as you began to bring others on and even those who are not so mindful, what that looks like and sounds like. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'll tell you, it's, it was much harder to be by myself. <laughs> um, and I would prepare them almost like a medical or an academic talk. You know, you kind of had slides, but I didn't want it to be too choreographed and I didn't want a script. I wanted it to be somewhat natural, but that was really, really, really challenging to kind of do that well. And what I found was a lot more natural and easy was to find really intelligent, thoughtful people and bring a topic to them or let them take the conversation. And you could just see where things go and you could be present with them and just feel their energy, feel where they're going and ask insightful questions and, and tough questions sometimes, but to really make people think about where they're coming from and where they are going, what works well for them, what doesn't, because we're all unique, but none of us are that unique. There's a lot of shared experiences out there and we can all learn from each other instead of trying to reinvent the wheel at every, every corner. Well, for our surgeons and families who have loved ones who are undergoing surgery or for our listeners who they themselves are undergoing surgery, what might be some of the learnings that your guests, your colleague surgeons have shared about their practices? Yeah, it runs the gamut. Some of it is 
simply simple practical things like time management and how to be more present at the tasks you're doing. A lot of them, whether they're busy academic surgeons or in private practices, how to organize your day to be more intentional and more mindful. So we start early as surgeons, typically 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, we're doing our first cases. So time is short. So how do you, you know, organize your family and your life so that you can do all of the things you need to do as a busy practicing worker? Some of it is how do you get more joy out of what you're doing? Because even though, as I said, we've got this incredibly revered profession, we all love what we do. There are tremendous bureaucratic obstacles in medicine now. There are tremendous sometimes soul-sucking kind of intrusions into our life and to who we are. And so helping people realize and, and readjust to really why they get into medicine and why they get into surgery, help them identify their value systems, uh, I think is a big part of it. Some of it I actually um, kind of learned and piggyback from, from our, my experience with you with mediation is some of this is really identity and understanding who you are. A lot of the conflicts I think a lot of conflicts in a lot of fields, but particularly in medicine and surgery are identity crises or identity conflicts where a surgeon thinks there's someone other than they actually are or behaving, or their boss thinks there's someone different than they are, or their institution thinks there's someone different than they are. And often reconciling that identity and that value system is something that um, I've learned and worked with people to kind of help surgeons be more mindful. Mm. We talk about dealing with complications and issues because that's part of being a surgeon. Things don't always go as well as we want them to go. And that hurts. It hurts your soul. It hurts who you are. And how to manage that in a productive fashion uh, is challenging. Yeah, we talk about interacting with tough colleagues. We talk about uh, a whole bunch of things that you can bring mindfulness to. So it's been a tremendous journey. So what a wonderful understanding of mindfulness that... It's really not just something that would be practiced um, in the morning when we wake up with our morning ritual or prayer, but actually is something that we can be doing intentionally all day long with anything, including difficult situations. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, my mindfulness practice now currently, or the way I, I encourage people to do mindfulness practice, I, I have a mindfulness practice in the morning. I wake up every morning, I do yoga, and then I have typically 10 minutes of, of quiet meditation before I start my day. But that is practice. That's what allows you to bring mindfulness practically to your day. So every day I operate, we do a timeout. Every surgeon across the country and probably the world now does a timeout before they start a case identify the patient, identify the surgery, you cover important things like antibiotics and positioning. Surgeons all over the country and the world do these timeouts. And now as part of our timeout, we set an intention at the beginning of the day. And depending who the resident or the trainees in, in the room may be, sometimes it's something very objective, like I want to learn kidney anatomy today, or I want to learn bladder anatomy or prostate anatomy, or how to do this portion of the operation. And everybody focuses on that. And sometimes it's a little more abstract. We want to work on communication today. Somebody, the other day, we had a, a challenging day in the operating room, and the following day said, I really want today to be peaceful. And so we worked on kind of a peaceful intention throughout the day and keeping things calm. You know, that's part of the practical um, part of it. And then the other way I, I encourage surgeons to work on mindfulness, whether they're into meditation or not, and mindfulness does not have to be meditation, and we can talk about that too. I think it's really important to work on kind of cardiovascular stress and working out. And the Army's got this down. So the Army now, whether you are you know, a grunt or whether you're an officer, 
will put you through physical obstacle courses before decision-making tasks. And the reason is when you get stressed, your heart rate goes up, your breathing goes up. And we can simulate that really quickly. Yeah. Just run around for a few minutes and we can raise our heart rate. We can raise our breathing rate. And the same thing happens in the operating room. Challenging case, heart rate goes up, breathing goes up. And one of the ways you can work on slowing things down and being more mindful is to practice slowing them down and controlling yourself when you're running or exercising or doing those things. So I encourage surgeons to kind of work on mindfulness when doing physical exercise too, because that will simulate things that can happen in the operating room. You know, that's so interesting. I was swimming this morning and I was sharing a lane with uh, a young woman who was swimming much faster than I, and I was very aware of wanting to make sure I stayed out of her space. And I was really admiring her sleekness as she, as she moved through the water. She also created a, a real vibration in the water and the waves so that it was no longer sort of a, I wasn't cracking the water with, with my stroke. She had already cracked it and it was sort of reverberating towards me. And I took in some water and I, I almost like had to like stop. And it was like, just breathe your way through this. And so I, I just did, and it was almost this, I don't know if it was like three seconds or five or six seconds, but it was simply bringing attention to the fact that I would bring oxygen back into my breath as opposed to, I can't breathe, I can't breathe kind of thing. <laughs> it's just dramatically changes so much of what I do, and then I forget. <laughs> And I have, you know, the moments where I really hiccup and forget I have a breath. Uh, you know? <laughs> and that's okay, too. That's why it's a practice. None yeah. of us are perfect. Right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, too, Phil, with what you shared about your own practice and how surgeons don't have to have a meditative practice. One of the, if you will, adages that I learned through all these many months on days on end with Archer in various hospitals and surgeries was, I didn't know this at first, but ask if you can be first in the morning, you know, and if you're not first, second or third, <laughs> because the surgeons are always better in the morning. That's the adage, right? Surgeons are always better in the morning. So I'm wondering how a mindful practice might allow a surgeon to be, to be best throughout the day. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you, that's exactly why it's an adage. I'm not sure it's uh, entirely true. There are, there are data, actually, that after-hour surgery has higher rates of complications and issues, but you have to recognize there's a lot of bias in that data. After-hour surgeries are typically happening for a reason after hours, right? There's an emergency or there's a problem. There's a less-than-ideal situation. That's why they may not have as good outcomes as a scheduled case there's certainly an element of time management and knowing yourself that I also work with surgeons. The, the classic adage to get back to, right, it, we talk about larks and owls, right? Some people are morning people. Some people are night people. Most surgeons are morning people just by the nature of the work we do, but not all of us. And knowing what kind of person you are is a big step to potentially optimizing your efficiency throughout the day. Mm. I'm clearly a morning person. I like to be in the hospital before anybody else. That's when I get some great work done. I like to be in the hospital way before the OR starts because I can have some quiet time and focus on things I want to do before it's time to be in the operating room. And then I'm awake and ready for the operating room where I have colleagues who probably aren't fully awake till mid-afternoon. And it's okay to organize your day differently. We get in this, once again, dogma that surgeons have to operate early in the morning. I'm not, a, I'm not an elite surgeon unless I'm operating in the morning and all day long. 
that's not true. Some people may be better in the afternoon than they are in the morning and recognizing mm. who you are and how to organize and structure your day. Some people are better putting their hardest cases first. Some people are better putting their harder cases later in the day. You've got to understand how to, who you are and how to organize your day. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, like we are each like our own ecosystem with, um, you know, humans have circadian rhythms and then each of us has our own proclivities and preferences yeah, I love that, you know, morning, afternoon, or, you know, if you're burning it on both ends, um, you know, what does that actually look like in practice for how long? Another mindful aspect for any uh, physician, I would imagine, with working as hard as physicians do. It's a lot to consider for a surgeon in the way of coming home to taking care of oneself also. It's been, you know, part of that journey and part of the reason I find this so fulfilling is it's allowed me to expand beyond my sphere um, and help others and help others in a way that aligns with who I am in surgery and helping kind of the surgical community. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of theories about kind of work-life balance or whatever term you want to use and integrating home and self and work and community together in some ways creates energy and creates harmony. And I will, when I first was reading that stuff, I was like, eh, community is probably the last thing that, that has importance, right? We focus on ourselves. We focus on home. Maybe we can make work a little bit better. And I'll tell you from experience, it really does make a huge difference being able to delve and give back to the community that you're in, whether it's the surgical community or your church or your synagogue or whatever it may be, that community really gives you tremendous harmony and strength. And I would encourage others to seek out, you know, giving back to the communities that they belong to mm -hmm. uh, where they can help. Yes, I know as it relates to trauma healing, a, a real key for that, gosh, I mean, there are, there are a few, but one of them further down the road, you know, not when you're completely in the middle of crisis by any stretch, but when you're on your healing journey is service you know, service to others. And that comes through community work oftentimes. Yeah, we see that with cancer survivors too. And I think it's probably a very similar phenomenon where obviously new diagnosis, you're going through treatments, that's not the right time. You may need somebody else's support. Yes, indeed. But, but when you come out of that and you are in more of the recovery process or the healing process or the survivorship process is the term we use in cancer, that that's a tremendous time for growth and potentially where you can go back and help somebody who might be in crisis mode at the moment. And not everybody benefits from that, but a lot of people do. And it's a tremendous opportunity for your own personal growth. If you can. That's actually why the nonprofit, the blink of an eye nonprofit, I see that has come into being. Um, there are a number of other parents, predominantly mothers of quadriplegics, who have been hand-selected, uh, and we're inviting others to join in to be navigators for other families in crisis, all, all through a multidisciplinary support team. And then we have a team of physicians, neuro um, neck surgeons and pulmonology and radiology and urology, uh, who can help read films and give the kind of advice that families need when they're in that crisis. But it's all service. It's, it's really premised on the concept of giving back something that you know very well uh, to others so that they might suffer a bit less. 
Yeah, very, very powerful. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking of how the word integration and mindfulness um, are really part and parcel um, to the, well, at least they are for me. Are they for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think integration implies kind of bringing lots of things together in, in an aligned fashion. And being purposeful, being intentional can help you integrate uh, I guess in, in that sense and help you bring things in, in one direction. Yeah. More than, more the method to the integration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but I'll tell you one of, um, one of my favorite words to talk to people about when we're working on identity and mindfulness and that is integrity, um, which is the same derivation as, as integrate and the idea of integrity, everybody erroneously kind of, aligns that with morality, which it can, it can align with morality, but integrity really is a sense of being whole, a sense of being one and being mindful and thoughtful and present. And I guess integrating to your point is really about being whole in that moment. I bringing just love everything that. Together. Yeah. And that the derivation of, you know, integrity comes from integration. Um, it's really powerful to think about that. One of the real gifts that I experienced and the, the other families whom I have worked with and had the joy and the privilege of working with in the spinal cord injury community, they have experienced as well, is this notion that we are whole. Uh, we're not alone and we're already whole. We, we can feel broken. Our bodies can be broken, but, but we are whole. And that's a very, very powerful experience to take that in fully or to have somebody around you believe that for you if at the moment you can't uh, take that in. I think it's a wonderful analogy. You know, we talk about it in the same ways. You know, integrity or being whole, it doesn't mean perfect. It's not perfection. But it's knowing and loving the rough edges and understanding where they are compared to the shiny portions of you. And knowing where they are, knowing what makes you whole is an incredibly powerful sense. I agree with you completely. doesn't mean perfection. No, it doesn't mean perfection. There's this movement I would like to see happen. And I, you and I began to talk about it when we first met a few years ago around relational health care. And my sense is that you're operating with Zen and looking at mindfulness in the surgical room is an absolute component of relational healthcare. What What do you think? As we think about kind of relational healthcare and my journey through kind of mindfulness and operate with Zen communities, there's a lot of like-minded individuals out there who are starting to think this way now. And it's not about just being that traditional dogmatic isolated surgeon that we, you can't isolate, you can't live or exist on your own. We exist in a community and we're successful because of the people who we, with whom we work and who we're surrounded with and integrating to go back to that term working well with people in a single solitary focus, I think is a really strong way to move together. And if you look at the, once again, literature from organizational psychology, whether it's in the business world, whether it's in kind of larger sectors of our society, they do really well in that kind of relational model. And medicine hasn't truly embraced that yet. 
And I think we're getting there. And I think there's people thinking about uh, moving in that direction. But I think it's a, a fascinating concept. I think that for me, I have seen some of the greatest shifts in medicine on the outside, right, as a patient, and then a bit on the inside as a mediator, with the shift to patient-centered care. But relational health care, for me, it, it doesn't stop there. Like, that that's an important beginning step. So the assumption being that we go from the physician-centered, you know, the physician knows it all, physician's the expert, you come in here, we take care of you, you exit to becoming more patient-centered. But then we have seen so much of the even friction between you know the nurses and the physicians or just the rest of the team and the physicians. And so you think, I think at least, I feel that there's something more about being doctor-centered, patient-centered, family-centered, you know, the people around the patient, the whole, the medical team-centered, And so I I think of it as being like well-being, well-being centered for all these amazing human beings who feel broken or who feel very strong coming together with the expertise that they have, even in their brokenness. You know, where where does it hurt the most or uh, what do we need to know about you and your life and your past? What, What can you bring forward in that as a family member? perhaps speaking on behalf of the patient who's not able to, and then, and then the medical team. So really being, I I just, I I thought a lot about this, started to write about this, but about being well-being centered. I don't know if that's exactly it or not. What what are your thoughts? I I love that. I'll tell you where my, where my mind went, but I'll tell you briefly. I really, um, I love that concept because if you think about Every stakeholder in that conversation, at the core of who they are, has a well outcome in mind, right? The physicians want the patients to get well. The nurses want the patients to get well. The patient wants the patient to get well. The family wants the patient to get well. Even hospital administrators and the finance people want the patient to get well. Yes. And that, that is a unified goal amongst everyone. There's no one who's, who's rooting for someone not to have an excellent outcome. No one. No one. And you can say, listen, if we're in a patient-centered model, there's there's people who may not be as as much an advocate for a patient as they may be for someone else, or there may be for, you know, um, or could put or could pit patients against each other, right? But if the focus is just wellness, then that everybody is aligned. And uh, you've made me think because you know, in my evolution as kind of a leader and bringing groups around. I, Initially, it kind of was always, all right, patient-centered model. We've got to make our decisions based on a patient. And then I've shifted away from that a little bit towards, for lack of a better term, kind of an Army-based model. Army's motto is soldiers first, then mission. And part of that was seeing all the burnout and struggles in healthcare and having people take care of each other first. It's like the, the airplane analogy, right? When the oxygen mask falls down, you got to put it on yourself first before you can help the people next to you. Yeah. Same kind of thing in, in medicine, which I don't think we did well, is take care of each other, whether it's your, your nursing team, your administrative assistant, your, 
your co-surgeons take care of each other and we can take better care of people. And I think we've been shifting in that direction, at least in, in my sphere here. But I really like to focus on wellness because that incorporates all of that together uh, in one kind of unified goal. I think so too. And even taking wellness to well-being, you know, because you can take someone who's very, very sick, very diseased, very torn up, and they can experience well-being. It's incredible. I don't know if you know this study, Luis. There's this classic study in the psychology literature, and I don't want to screw it up too badly, but they, I'm, it's basically along the lines of they took recent lottery winners and recent amputees, I believe it was the two groups. Oh, my. And at the end of a study period, they had the exact same overall satisfaction and happiness scores. They were, they had the same well-being, right? They were well-adjusted people. They designed an intervention to help them kind of adjust to their new situation. And at the end, everybody on the outside would say they were very different groups. And those groups of people rated themselves as having the same well-being. It's just amazing, isn't it? I'd love to know what they were measuring. And specifically, I will share with you as a, a social scientist in the arena of conflict that we have tracked and measured empowerment and recognition. And the idea of empowerment being that we move to, we shift to feeling calmer and stronger and clearer and more decisive and focused and recognition that we move out of feeling closed down, judgmental, unresponsive to others to a place that's more open and responsive, sort of a recognition shift. And we know from people in conflict, whether they're in litigation or whether they were in a family or whether they're never going to see each other or whether they're sworn enemies or whether they still love each other desperately but can't figure it out, or they need to work well together, if all of those different groups of people experience shifts to feeling more empowered and shifts to feeling more open and responsive, their satisfaction rates are also very, very high. So how about that? Fascinating. I I love this stuff. I'm totally enthralled by how people can be better and how people can be better together. And it's fun talking. I have too. It's so much fun, especially when, you know, they don't have to, I think there's a really clear analogy. I just, you know, you're helping me like ding, 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 little light bulbs going off. Like, wow. You know, we've got medicine with someone being like, well, you know, we've got in mediation, people think there's been like an agreement, but it's really about a qualitative experience of well-being. It's one of my favorite things to say to people is, you know, we get so focused on medicine and in science on hard, objective outcomes. The whole point of being mindful and thoughtful and well-being is subjective, is to have a better experience. Well, Dr. Phil Parazio, my experience with you is bettered, and I thank you so much. As we wind down, is there anything else that you would like to share Oh, we covered so many things. It was so much fun talking with you. Um, I I do hope, uh, and I know we're going to cross paths again, and I look forward to talking about kind of conflict and and how we can be better at that and how mindful approaches to conflict resolution, I think, can help a lot of people, but maybe for another day. 
for another day on conflict transformation. I am open anytime. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Phil. It's really been an enlightening conversation and to all of us to be more mindful and for our surgeons and what it is that as patients we might actually bring to our surgeons to therefore help them and us. How powerful is that? And you are one of our leaders in that. Thank you. Oh, yes, there is such a strong connection between mindfulness and reducing our suffering. We have so many ways to cultivate mindfulness to lessen our pain, our emotional losses, our daily frustrations, and to sharpen our minds and our decision-making. Mindfulness for surgeons, for quadriplegics, for us all. Imagine if we all led a more mindful approach to daily living. Even when it comes to daily life, whether in work or play, or outside of life-altering surgeries and medical scares, mindfulness for all of us is an invaluable skill. One way to hone your mindfulness might be to listen in to Operate with Zen or to come to a Baltimore Mediation 40-hour skills training for self-awareness and conflict transformation. It's all about awakening our self-awareness and our natural capacity to observe ourselves. We are more effective in the world when we do so. And you might even try discussing mindfulness with a family member or close friend, just like I did with Dr. Parazio. His insights certainly helped me, and we hope they've guided you in walking the path to find your Zen. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love hope for everything, obtain everything, love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 8, The Ability to Know Certain Things. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following, and thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for you. You have been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face -face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com. Thank you.